Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Uh, today, I'm here with Neil Seldman, who's the director of ILSR's Waste to Wealth Initiative, as well as Captain Charles Moore, who's the author of Plastic Ocean and a longtime zero waste advocate. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Neil, if you want to uh, get us started. Yes, I will. And it's a pleasure to uh, to have Charles here. I've known Charles for many years, and we both uh, coordinate the Save the Albatross Coalition, uh, which is a grassroots organization. And uh, I'll just let people know that, uh, that Charles has been a pioneer researcher. Uh, he's continuing his research through several research organizations, which we'll hear about. And uh, he is an international leader, but he's also an, a, a national leader uh, involved in uh, all aspects of retaining plastic, protecting the oceans, and helping the country as well as the world get to zero waste. Having said that, um, I'd like to ask Charles uh, to start us off by just uh, indicating what uh, what led you to inquire about the garbage patches that you discovered now some 25 years ago. Well, it uh, was uh, an accidental kind of uh, discovery, although I hesitate to call it a, a discovery because it was just a, a feeling of unease about seeing so much anthropogenic debris and as far from human civilization as you can get. Uh, this uh, <clears throat> eastern North Pacific subtropical gyre is huge. It's probably the largest climatic feature on the planet. And I crossed it in 1997 during the largest El Nino on record. And it was very calm and that allowed whatever trash was there to float to the surface. And I couldn't come on deck without seeing some form of you know, human-made debris passed by the vessel. And that happened for a whole week. So as a self-described marine mammal growing up here on the ocean in Long Beach, California, um, it just rubbed me the wrong way to have trash be there out in the middle of the ocean. So I was involved in researching bacteria in our ocean for uh, the fact that our beaches were beginning to be closed for coliform bacterial levels getting so high that it was a danger to recreate in our local waters. And so I had connections to the research community and I presented them with this conundrum of how do I determine how much stuff of any sort is in the middle of the ocean? Because it's not a fixed place. It's always on the move and uh, it's not like sampling near shore where you can set up a geographical location and go back there and expect to have the same sorts of conditions. These are constantly changing. So uh, this high pressure system, this great North Pacific subtropical gyre was a, was a problem for us to determine how to sample it. Uh, I got the help of some statisticians at the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project and some scientists there and we designed a sampling strategy. Uh, I wanted uh, to understand it and, and sample it carefully to get some kind of a feeling of how much is out there. Because when I did a back of the envelope calculation, and, and this was still, I was interested in waste at the time, I calculated that if there was a half a, a pound in a hundred square feet of ocean, 
it would be equal in this system, this subtropical gyro system, to a year's deposition in Plenty Hills landfill, which is the largest landfill. California, probably one of the largest in the United States. If this much trash was floating in the ocean, I wanted to quantify it. I wanted to get some science onto it because that's what people listen to. I did go back two years later with sampling equipment, and, and that's when the discovery was really made of the fact that we had a garbage patch because what we found was six times as much plastic as zooplankton in the surface waters out there. That means there was more trash than life in the area as far from human civilization as you can get anywhere on earth. Let me interrupt right there and ask you, because I know that was your original findings back in the 90s. What, are your, what have your re most recent findings shown about that ratio of six to one? Well, we're a small research lab and we don't have a big staff and I'm not part of a academic institution. So I can't tap some undergraduates on the shoulder and say, go into the lab and look at my samples and tell me how much is there. So we're still analyzing our 2019 sample set. And that was uh, a 20 year time series. We've seen it going up, but to really establish trends over the 20 year time frame, we need to finish our 2019 expedition samples. And we haven't done that yet. But everyone knows that looks around them that trash in their neighborhood, wherever they are, is going up. And uh, it doesn't take a scientist to point that out. So uh, the question is how much and, and, and what is it doing when we have this new invader of the biosphere, this synthetic polymer, which defeats natural decay organisms. That is the real issue for me. Mm. Well, um, I just want to point out two things that um, Charles has written describing his early years in this uh, area, Plastic Ocean, how a, captain, a sea captain's chance discovery launched a determined quest to save the oceans. It's Penguin USA uh, 2011. And we'll, we'll have that linked in the, in the post for this episode. So oh, that's great. the hardback, Neil. And yes, the and paperback a, has an extra chapter on the health effect. Yes, uh, which which I haven't seen, but I, I look forward to it. I also want to point out that just yesterday, the Institute published uh, a, a new uh, important article by Charles uh, called Landfill Mining, which we'll be talking about in a moment. I just want uh, Charles to uh, let us know before you, what was, what was your education and training that prepared you so that when you saw this garbage patch back in 97, you were alerted and you knew what to do. Uh, if you could just give us a couple of sentences of how you were trained uh, to do this. Well, I was trained uh, by my father who was an industrial chemist. Uh, uh, we don't hear too much about chemistry sets these days as a recreational toy for children, but our family had a laboratory and they used a washroom. My childhood was taken up with chemical experiments. And wow. I was a chemistry major at UC San Diego but I was also aware of our situation as a political animal and being part of the world. I realized in the 1960s, the late 60s, that uh, this uh, war in Vietnam was evil and untenable. And uh, rather than pursue a continued degree and get a PhD and become a chemist on some corporate chemistry staff, I decided to uh, break away from academia and go out on my own with a political agenda, which was to 
stop the war in Vietnam and uh, you know exercise some local control over uh, what happens in our community. So that uh, I was equipped with science, but I was also equipped with a political consciousness that allowed me to put two and two together and say, this is a political problem if we have trash in the middle of the ocean, not just a scientific study problem. Uh, that's kind of where I came from. And then I, I just, you know, the, the ability to see the need for a new field of science. And, and that's what we've developed over the years, truly. Uh, when I started out, I could not find one paper a year on the subject of plastic pollution in the ocean. Wow. Now we have a thousand papers per year plastic in the ocean. So we really did develop a new field of science. Well, this is a, this is a great uh, statement for young people to hear, combining scientific inquiry with political values, normative values. So uh, thanks for, for, for summing that up for us. I want to get back now to what I mentioned earlier, that Charles recently did a piece, a long piece, which we published uh, on landfill mining. And uh, I love the theme uh, I'm restating it, but it uh, basically is garbage dumps into resource recovery parks uh, is the goal. And uh, this is an international goal, not just for the United States. And Charles, I was just wondering if you could give us a few minutes of what you observed uh, as you went around the world looking at these dumps and came up with your ideas for how to deal with them. I've been on a speaking tour, what I've called the Plastic Pollution Conversation. Uh, because we are in the age of plastics and we live behind a plastic curtain of ignorance. And I was drawing back that plastic and informing people about the product that defines our age. You know, the Stone Age is defined by stones, the Bronze Age by bronze. And people in the Stone Age, I think, knew more about what to do with a stone than people in the Plastic Age know what to do with their plastic. <laughs> so unique, so variable so different from anything we've been accustomed to and to have it in such huge quantities uh, and have it in such huge varieties people just don't know where it comes from they don't know what how it's made they don't know what its effects are and largely because they're so intimately in touch with it they consider it to be a kind of inert material kind of innocent in a way and and, and that's not the case in, in any sense and that was my goal in touring, was to draw back that plastic curtain of ignorance. And, and of course, a lot of the folks that wanted to hear about it are folks that are involved in the zero waste movement, involved in, in recycling. And I was able to see some very unique efforts in uh, countries I visited, especially in my sailing trip to study the South Pacific garbage patch. And we sampled that in uh, 2017. And then I came up the coast of Chile, and that's where I saw the Atacama Desert uh, in Antofagasta being reclaimed by a fantastic couple who turned a desert wasteland into a resource recovery park. Parque Reciclado Eco Rayen is an amazing effort uh, where they've built an oasis in the middle of the desert with all with reclaimed uh, materials. Seeing something out of nothing made me realize that uh, there's no excuse for throwing everything away. There's a lot of areas that need to have reclaimed materials as their infrastructure. And this park is powered by uh, reject solar panels. You know, a lot of times things are rejected. You know this in the, in the, in the ugly fruit movement, in the ugly vegetable movement. Things are <laughs> discarded for looks, not for any uh, significant 
real problem with them, but they're still functional. Many products that are headed for landfill really only need a little help to become those useful products that they were designed to be. And that's what captured my attention at Parque Reciclado Eco Rayin. That's a very uh, important uh, example of what can and should be done with our discards. Charles, did that project, does that project have government support or is it completely private uh, sector, uh, community-based? No, it's completely private sector, community-based. It's very rare to have government in the forefront of materials recovery or anything else uh, because uh, it's attached to the status quo. It, it, yep. Government uh, survives on, on, on the status quo and it, it, it wants to see 10, 100, or 1,000 examples of anything new already having been successful mm. in order to risk their precious government resources on doing anything new. You know, um, what you say is, is an exact uh, description of what I found. Uh, I did a project in the, for the World Bank in the 1980s. They sent me down to Medellin, Colombia, where there were, there's a big landfill in the middle of the city with a lot of waste pickers. And we laid out a strategy to make them more efficient, get them conveyor belts, tables, coverings uh, during the, the rain. Uh, the goal was to make them more efficient to get their kid children out of the out of the dumps and into the schools. And when the World Bank, the World Bank accepted the project, but the local politicians wouldn't, because they figured if the uh, the, the waste pickers got organized, they'd be a political force. So what? What? And the, the project was discarded. Uh, um, exactly in the dynamics that you pointed out. So my next question is, well, it's a point uh, that you may want to comment on is that um, these technical solutions need political support. And it's both a technical and political problem as you were laying out earlier. Well, that, I, I say in my disclaimer to the article that it was an effort to reclaim utopian possibilities. And people will point to zero waste as a utopian goal. As a matter of fact, zero waste advocates constantly have to defend the concept yes. of zero yep. uh, because uh, everyone knows nothing is perfect. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we say zero waste, uh, you know, we have a slogan, if you're not for zero waste, how much waste are you for? And the answer would be, well, we're people are for whatever amount of waste uh, allows the status quo to continue to exist. Exactly. The, the status quo is moribund. It is um, unable to cope with the realities of the 21st century. Uh, the forces that have created this immense wealth and this fantastic technology have been unable to organize it for the benefit of humankind in such a way that it doesn't leave, and I'm going to use the term billions, billions of people out of the equation. Uh, this is not sustainable to have a world in which billions of people are expected to scrap on discards and uh, claw their way out of poverty with no help. My utopian vision is coupled with the reality of political intransigence, uh, political reaction, uh, and uh, to be quite frank, a political stupidity. The goal is to use technology 
to liberate mankind. It has that potential. There's no question, but liberating technology is already in place and has helped millions of people. The question is, what about the billions that haven't been helped by it? Mm -hmm. We can't ever lose sight of that. Uh, the, the stock market rallying in this time of immense suffering is an example of how, as an economy, lose sight of the poorest among us. And yep. we can't do that if we're going to have a sustainable society going into the future. Why? Because we've already created a determinate negation of that society with climate change and plastic pollution. We'll hear more from Charles in a minute, but first we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. As we get closer to the end of the year, I know we're not the only organization asking for your support, but we really do rely on your help to keep this podcast going and to produce the other resources necessary to push back against concentrated corporate power and build strong local communities. So if you're able, we hope you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to contribute today. That's ilsr.org donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. Now let's go back to my conversation with Neil Seldman and Captain Charles Moore. Could you talk a little bit more about what that uh, utopian vision looks like, either for the recovery parks in particular or zero waste generally? I mean, what are the what are some of the direct and indirect benefits to communities um, if they were, you know, to move away from landfills towards recovery parks, for example? Well, first of all, it's space. You know, uh, if we continue down the road we're on now, we will be living between landfills. Uh, landfills are, are, are happening uh, even without being organized as landfills. Things are just filling up with our trash. The beaches are becoming landfills. Uh, the ocean, I called uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch a sea fill in the middle of the ocean. Mm. It's filling up with our garbage. So we're going to have a lot more space uh, if we stop wasting. Uh, we're going to have room for the people on the planet to live a more fulfilling life. And the way we do that is to always remember that everything is a resource waiting for recovery. All products can be reincarnated. We reincarnate agriculture biologically. We have no problem with that. We know that our compost grows new plants. And so my vision is twofold. One, to mimic the natural world's biological zero waste system, which, you know, a forest is a zero waste economy. No one goes into the forest to fertilize the trees so we can have 200, 500 year old trees. They take care of themselves. It's a zero waste economy. It's an economic model. Now with technology, there's problems because many technological products are difficult to handle in a circular steady state type of economy. But that's where my vision for the Resource Recovery Park has the Resource Recovery University. We don't give nearly enough time at academic institutions towards the science of recovery of resources. We need a Nobel Prize for resource recovery. We need a faculty of recycling and resource recovery. We don't have that. That's why I think as part of making the recycling of materials sexy, we need to have a university at the landfill 
which is no longer a landfill, it's a resource recovery park, but we build it with the materials from the landfill. We're going to mine these landfills, build these universities that are gonna focus on recycling and resource recovery. And we're gonna do it with the materials that are there. And because truly uh, we're gonna go backwards from building a city and then building a landfill. We're gonna go from having a landfill to building a city. Love that. I love that image. I, I also want to point out um, the, the, your, your mention zero. The, the actual uh, term zero waste is what we use, is, is we say is zero waste or dawn close to it. So we realize that we can't get to zero, but we're at, in, in the United States now we're at one third recycling. Uh, if we would double that or uh, get it to 80 or 90 percent, the impact would be tremendous, even if we don't get to uh, actual zero. Um, Charles, I wanted to add, add to your response to Jess's question by saying that uh, not only the, the space benefits and the other benefits you mentioned, but a zero-waste society will give more time for people to do whatever they wanted, uh, do more work, do more uh, recreation, and money. A zero-waste uh, zero uh, economy is, uh, is less expensive. But the most important thing that a zero waste economy does is to focus people not on material possessions, but on their relationships with their family, with their neighbors, and of course, with uh, the political system. So uh, if I could ask another question, thank you for that, Jess. I, I, wanted, I want you to let people know what organizations do you network with? What organizations should people be paying attention to that you help them and they inform your work? And uh, we have... Uh, uh, we have a, a, a better synthesis after everyone is putting in their input. Well, uh, in my travels, and, and I did get an honorary PhD from a university in uh, British Columbia, Canada, uh, uh, and there I noticed that there was some very progressive thinking about refill stations instead of having, uh, they, they were fighting the contract that they had with uh, the vending machine operator. And the vending machine operators, of course, want to stock with all kind of disposables. The students wanted to put in washing machines and uh, places where you could leave your cup, pick up another cup uh, as an alternative to the vending machine culture. And I think universities are a good place to start. Uh, I think the post landfill action network that uh, mm -hmm. seeks to make zero waste universities is a good group to network with. As a matter of fact, the organization I started, Algolita Marine Research and Education has a director of partnership. Uh, we don't really focus on getting ourselves in a prominent position. We focus on maximizing our partnerships uh, ability interesting. To, to work. Because truly, when we're dealing with climate change or with plastic pollution, we're dealing with a global problem in which everyone is part of the problem and everyone is part of the solution. There's a, a new politics. Uh, when, when the German philosophers talked about the Weltgeist, the world spirit, it was mostly about the spirit of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Now we have a new world spirit uh, connected by the internet uh, that is going to make a political uh, reality come true, which is a world political movement. And that's what will be required to deal with climate change and what will be required to deal with plastic pollution will be a world consciousness. And that uh, is obviously subject to manipulation. Unfortunately, uh, the, the algorithms that the, 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 the corporate uh, 
social media folks use, associate like with like and give people more of the bad stuff if they're already in a bad way. So we're not at the point where it's a kind of panacea, but there will be efforts to make uh, world political movements more rational and to attack world problems uh, in, a, in a way that will actually make a difference. Because you know, and I know that all the conferences on climate change that have taken place have not produced a reduction in the, even in the production of carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide production continues to go up. So we haven't turned it around. The traditional political organizing that is taking place is not producing results that can deal with this, what I call the determinant negation of our capitalist system, which is that as it continues to profit by this uh, wonderful technology, it creates conditions that make it unsurvivable in the future. It's creating a climate situation that is incredibly um, sporadic and dangerous. And plastic pollution is creating a situation in which we now know that zooplankton in the ocean cannot pass the polyester fibers from our clothing. And that's gonna clog up the basic food source in the ocean. So this is what I mean by determinate negation, where like I say it in the article, like uh, bacteria consuming agar agar on a Petri dish, they eventually get to the point where there's more excrement than there is food and their mm. civilization collapses. That's what we're facing. That is a future that can only be avoided by world political action. Uh, thank you for that, Charles. I, I was remembering as you were speaking about the climate crisis, the plastic crisis, and, and actually the food uh, uh, crisis, I was thinking back in the late 60s when we had the uh, first emergence of environmental consciousness in the country, uh, the, Ohio the Cleveland River was on fire, uh, the Santa Barbara oil spill, uh, and uh, the inversions uh, around uh, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas in 1969 alerted people. And the question is, right now we're facing even greater threats. Uh, will the political systems respond? I think that is the question of our age. No politician, Neil, no matter how progressive, can get us out of this mess. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to require grassroots political organizing. On Absolutely. I, mean, I meant to say that we, we need the, the grassroots effort to continuously press who's ever in power. And with Biden, we have an opportunity, but it's up to us to keep that pressure on. I do understand that. Are you involved in any, I don't know, uh, projects or organizing right now or anything you're starting or excited about? Yeah, uh, uh, Neil mentioned a, a food crisis. I might add to that a water crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. It turns out that these plastic fibers are in our water and we're drinking it and we're getting it in our food. We're getting it through the air. So my latest initiative was to start an organization that could drill down into the nano scale, which these particles you know, of plastic don't go away. They just break down until they're nano scale millionth of a meter size plastic, uh, we're, we're going to have to regulate plastic pollution in our tap water. And I've started a laboratory and in conjunction with international labs from China and Europe, from around the globe, uh, we're developing methods now to determine how much 
plastic is in our drinking water so that uh, it, uh, governments can begin to regulate uh, the sources and causes of this type of contamination. So the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research just held a, a Giving Tuesday fundraiser. We did pretty well. And uh, we go to the lab every day. We sit on that microscope and sit on a chair in front of the microscope and uh, look at uh, samples of water and pull out little bits of plastic. Uh, and these are standardized amongst the 40 labs that are participating in the study. Uh, they've all received a standardized, uh, you know, hundreds of particles of plastic in clear water. And the idea is to find out how well they coordinate uh, in order to have a, a standardized methodology uh, that we can rely on to then uh, create regulations when we determine how much plastic is in our drinking water. So I've started the Moore Institute for Plastic Pollution Research and uh, working closely with my former institution, Algolita Marine Research and Education. Uh, and that's uh, the latest initiative I have. I should mention, however, too, that in times of COVID, I, I always had a, a hand in the biological regenerative side. And I started Long Beach Organic to turn vacant lots into organic community gardens. And we've now started a program with uh, Long Beach Organic to uh, dedicate a certain part of all our community gardens to growing food for uh, people in need during COVID. And I just got them uh, a $10,000 grant so that they could expand that project and get food out to the community uh, that's organic and fresh and can be combined with all the canned goods and other stuff they're getting. So I have a two-pronged approach. Uh, my first handle at the dawn of the internet was land and sea. And uh, I believe that we can't really fix uh, what's in the ocean without fixing what we do on land. That requires organic land management, requires a regenerative agriculture, and requires that we start giving space to cities uh, to produce their own food. You know, the city of Paris was self-sustaining early in its history uh, in terms of agriculture. And we need to have self-sustaining cities now. The folks are doing it in high rises. Uh, they're doing it under glass. Uh, they're doing it in open space and vacant lots. And I want to combine both our land approach to zero waste and the study of the sea uh, to create this kind of knowledge base that we need. Uh, incremental change uh, is not our friend in a time of crisis. And that's why I believe, and I know you agree with me, Neil, that radical political change is a, is a must for human Yes, we, we have to get to the, the root causes of things. <clears throat> I, I just wanted to add to what Jess asked about your itinerary for this coming year, 2021. Will, will you still be going out on oceans during 2021? Uh, yeah. Making your expeditions, okay. There's a, a new initiative uh, by a local resource organization I mentioned before, the uh, Southern California Coastal Water Research Project, a joint powers authority works with the waste dischargers and the, uh, the various uh, government entities that deal with water, the water boards, they're wanting to study uh, and get baseline data on how much plastic is in our local water area that we call San Pedro Bay. There's two major 
urban rivers, the San Gabriel and the Los Angeles River discharging there. They want samples off of those rivers. And uh, I think it's a three-year project mm. where that they've uh, asked my vessel to be the support vessel uh, for this effort because I've designed uh, the epibenthic sleds they're going to be using to sample plastic near the sea floor. I'm building a new one right now. And uh, we're going out today after this interview to uh, uh, begin uh, practicing with some of our new research equipment. I will be active on the water. I'll be active in the lab and I'll be active in my garden. Every Sunday, I have a local farmer's market that can't be more local than being in my front yard. Uh, and I make a, a little bit of money every weekend with passersby. I put out my surplus food. I grow for the community. I find out what their interests are, what they like, and I, I grow it. I have uh, 46 years of agricultural uh, experience in organic uh, urban farming. And uh, Captain Charlie's urban farm is inspected by the County Agricultural Commissioner have a seller's permit. And every Sunday from 10 to four, I put out a table with my goods on it. And uh, I also let people harvest their own if they want. And, and I harvest as they come. So it can't be any fresher than that. A true Renaissance man, uh, a national and international uh, treasurer. The picture on the book, it's a wonderful graphic showing a fish contaminated by uh, everything we're throwing out. And uh, there have been many other pictures of albatrosses have been dissected and showing why they died with all this. And I'm rem reminded of the great uh, uh, poster that Greenpeace produced in the 80s uh, when the Mobro garbage barge was moving around the ocean, Next Time Recycle, which became an iconic poster at university uh, dorm rooms, etc. Um, so I wanted to compliment you on the graphic for the, uh, uh, on the book. Um, Getting back, if you don't mind, to the uh, mining the landfill, which your your most recent publication, have you uh, besides describing the, uh, the the project you did? Are you familiar with any similar projects in the United States that have been trying to to build these resource recovery parks out of recycled materials? Uh, I I do know of uh, one in Hawaii that oh. uh, has made a fairly decent a park at, at the Waimea uh, transfer station and uh -huh. has a store uh, where they sell uh, uh, reusable materials, uh, mostly clothing and electronics, but uh, anything that's in good enough condition, because a lot of things that come to the landfill, as I said before, are in pretty good condition. And, mm -hmm. and the minor uh, repairs can be made usable again. So uh, this uh, transfer station is a, a nice model because when people come there, uh, it's not just one receptacle to dump stuff in. It's a series of receptacles that have cardboard, uh, mixed paper, glass, metal. Uh, you have all this separation going on by the community. It's especially useful in communities that don't have curbside because curbside tends to want to have just one single recyclable mm -hmm. bin. But if you have communities that take their uh, waste to the uh, transfer station, you can have them separate it at the transfer station. So you get several different kinds of materials without uh, anybody but the producer of that waste having yeah. separated it. Let me, let me uh, point out that uh, a good friend of both of ours, 
Dan Knapp and Mary Lou Vandeventer at Urban Ore, they just negotiated. It's a reuse a company uh, on three acres in Berkeley. They just uh, won a contract with a service fee. Every ton they pull out of the materials going to uh, going through the transfer station, they get $46 a ton, which is what the city would have had to pay to, to landfill it. Um, so there are, there are excellent examples. I just want to mention uh, two more. St. Vincent de Paul in Eugene, Oregon has a whole network of repair operations, appliances, mattresses, furniture, textiles. And then a new phenomenon in Appalachia called the reuse corridor. It, uh, it serves uh, Southern Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and parts of Pennsylvania, where uh, co communities are getting together to aggregate mattresses, electronic scrap, and then they're contracting with end users and processors. So the reuse, uh, the reuse uh, is happening in the United States. We would love to see the uh, full uh, resource recovery parks the way Charles has, has described them. And uh, as Charles said, it's, it's, uh, we're all uh, in a work in progress, making progress with, uh, with lots of barriers. Before we leave, we usually ask uh, our, our guest, what two books or two articles do you think are, are, are important for people to read at this point, Charles, in your opinion? Well, um, uh, you know, do people still read? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I, I think some of us still do, Charles. <laughs> I, I thought it was all emojis now. We'll take an emoji suggestion too, if you've got one. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, uh, I like, uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver. Oh, yes. Uh, an Appalachian farmer that moved from Tucson, Arizona, decided to live on everything that they could produce. She has a very good perspective on zero waste. It's the agricultural side, very good. And then uh, there's another one called Utopia for Realists uh, that talks about utopian ideas not being any more utopian. Uh, that was uh, my professor at UC San Diego, Herbert Marcuse, has written several books. I uh, recommend you to, to read any of those, M-A-R-C-U-S-E. His take on technology was that it's wasted if it's not used for the utopian possibilities yep. that it presents. And that's what we're doing. We're wasting technology, not only goods. We're wasting our ability to liberate humanity. Uh, these uh, miracles of technology can be shared. Uh, and that was my purpose in writing this article. Was, uh, I talked about, uh, you know, uh, waste pickers on one side of the landfill and then modern technology on the other side. And when they meet in the middle, the landfill would be completely mined. Mm. would have all the resources they can have. And I think that's the kind of utopian vision that we need, that we can unite uh, the technical with the artisan and create a world in which artisan possibilities are liberated by technology. So you don't have to be a slave to your trade. Uh, your trade can liberate you through the technology. Uh, that's my vision. And that's what I tried to communicate in this article. Well, Charles, I can, I can say as being a, a, a long retired uh, uh, professor of political theory, that Jean-Jacques Rousseau's first discourse in the 1750s made the same point, that all the science and technology that we're, we're advancing does not do anything if it doesn't help the common person. 
So we're we're both living in a we're we're both abiding a long tradition in Western political thought. And uh, Charles, you've animated it. You've given us examples and inspiration. I really appreciate your time. So thanks again, Charles. Have a great weekend. And uh, uh, Neil, I want to thank you for sticking with the Save the Albatross Coalition. A lot of people don't realize that the albatross is in so much danger from eating yes. plastic waste. Thanks for continuing to work on that. And uh, we hope for big things for the Save the Albatross Coalition in the future. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give a quick update. The Albatross Coalition is working with lawyers to develop uh, uh, municipal lawsuits against the big polluters for uh, suing to, for funds to clean up the beach. And that's one of among a number of projects from Save the Albatross Coalition. Um, I want to give a shout out to Laura Anthony, who is the staff coordinator for the Save the Albatross Coalition as well. She's based in San Diego. Thanks again for the interview. Yep. Thanks. All Thank our you. best to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. <laughs> Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to Charles's book, his new article, and everything else we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced and edited by me, Jeff Selfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Music